0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. And, you know, you've heard us talk about uh, living an extraordinary life. And here's a question for you. What does that even look like? How would you get there? And how would you know that you're moving toward it? And uh, some of you out there know my good friend Richard Ryerson on Dose of Leadership. And he called me up and he said he just had one of the most amazing interviews with Darren Gold about this exact topic, because Darren has just written a book called Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. And we have Darren with us here today. Darren, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast.
1: Thank you, John. It's great to be on here. Really appreciate you having me.
0: Well, I am excited for this topic. I think it's something that's front of mind for so many people Everybody out there, just a little background on Darren. Uh, He's a managing partner at the Trium Group. It's one of the world's uh, leading executive coaches and advisory firms. They work with CEOs and some of the largest companies around Roche and Activision and Lululemon. And by the way, my daughter-in-law just bought a pair of Lululemon uh, (laughs) yesterday. and was very excited when she came over to let everybody know, uh, Darren. And I love what you talk about. You live, you, the way that you coach, the way that you work is at that intersection of strategy and human performance. Yeah. Um, And I I think that's, uh, I love that where that spot is and where you're coming from. But here's a question for you. I'd like to just turn it over for you a little bit uh, so the audience can get to know you and just uh, love for you to go back as far as you like and just kind of share your journey you know, up to this point.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. I uh, I'll start reasonably early because I think it's an important place to start in understanding human beings. I was born in London, England. I was born into a rather um, dysfunctional and some might say kind of unsafe family. My father dropped out of school very early. Uh, on literally took to the streets, turned to a life of crime, and I was born into that, and that was sort of my norm. Was your dad Peaky Um, Blinders? Yeah, you know, there's some interesting overlaps there. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Not quite as violent, thank goodness. But it was definitely a life of, I got to do whatever I need to do to make ends meet and provide for my family. And that crossed the line in in many instances. Mm -hmm. Both of my parents spent some intermittent time in jail. I was, uh, you know, had sort of, there was drug and alcohol abuse in my family I lived with my father. I moved to the, uh, Southern California to the U.S. Um, early on and lived with my father uh, in a one-bedroom apartment. And despite all of that, despite all of that sort of uncertainty and volatility, I had one constant thing, which was the unconditional and complete love for my father. Mm. And that was um, sort of the antidote to all of the chaos that surrounded me. But given that upbringing, I began to develop a pretty core set of beliefs, one of which was the importance of education and education so that I could achieve a level of security and success so that I didn't have to lead the life that I had been leading, and that when I had the opportunity to raise a family of my own, I could provide them with a very different family. So quite an unusual childhood I think. It didn't seem to so to me at the time, but in retrospect, of course, and really shaped for a long time who I was and it was the coming to terms with who I was really that um, began this long journey that I've been on to ask the question you posed at the beginning which is like what does it take to lead a, a truly extraordinary life and uh, a big part of that question and answer I had to deal with you know who I was and where I came from.
0: Yeah what were. What were some of those times that, you know, when you knew it was not an extraordinary life that might have shaped that, I guess, clarity toward what you
1: were moving toward? Yeah, it does. I had, um, despite that upbringing, um, quite a bit of personal and professional success early on and and a big part of it was, we'll talk about identity perhaps. It's one of the chapters in my book, but an identity of, I could, achieve anything I wanted to, and it was something, my, that was the gift my father gave me, which is belief in myself, uh, supreme self-confidence that probably wasn't warranted, but nevertheless, it formed who I was, and out of that came quite a bit of, of success. It also came with a lot of blind spots, an almost obsessive drive towards achieving and getting ahead, not in a way that hurt other people, but just sort of was so much on autopilot And I think part of it drove me to have quite a bit of success in my early 30s and mid-30s. And I was a partner at a a large investment firm making more money than I ever thought I I would and uh, really thought I was at the height of my professional career. And then I write about this in the book. Um, One day I walked into the office of my CEO and I was summarily fired. And that event was a... Wait,
0: like you walk in and they're like, hey, Darren, how are you? Just got to share something with you. You're done. Yes. Uh, wow, that must have been a sh- absolute shock. What was your first thought when that happened?
1: It was, you know, I, I, if you've ever been in, if any of your listeners have ever been in a situation like that, I was just stunned. I, I really mm-hmm. didn't know what to think. Uh, my whole um, conception of self came into question and it was the first pretty real and significant failure in my life. Uh, I was really shook to the core. So, and, that's an interesting
0: yeah. point. You're, is you at that point, you know, being a high earner, being a, uh, the stature of that firm, were you allowing kind of your entire identity to be kind of shaped by
1: everything external? Very much so. Mm. And I think for most people, right, we go through life um, trying to seek validation externally. And, you know, their measures of professional success, what people say about you, right? All of these things were driving me and very much. Um, so when that happened, of course, uh, you could imagine the kind of dissonance I was experiencing. And it was the catalyst. I think Warren Bennis, the late leadership expert said, you know, people will have these crucible events in their life mm-hmm. where it forces them to come to terms with who they are and what they want in life. And this was that for me. It wasn't sort of like, oh, automatic. I figured it out, right? It took some time to unfold. But over the course of the next two or three years, I began to ask the big questions in life. Like, who am I? What do I want? What drives me? Um, and a, 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 the invitation to begin what Joseph Campbell called the kind of the hero's journey of like deeply exploring myself and beginning a path of, uh, of self-mastery which led to a whole bunch of different things coming together and the kind of like the line of work that I do and the, the, the book that I've, I've written.
0: Now these questions, who am I, you know, uh, what do I want? What drives me? They, you know, we hear them all the time, Darren, honestly. And, and, uh, on the surface, it seems like, wow, that, you know, I, I should just sit down and figure that out. Mm-hmm. But these questions actually take some work and some intentionality,
1: don't they? They really do. And to do it without any guidance is is really difficult because what we're doing is we're taking on, in many cases, decades of patterns and ways of thinking and huge areas of unawareness. And I'm glad you asked that question, John, because I think I wrote the book in many respects to offer, humbly speaking, a guidebook for taking those questions on and providing what I call distinctions that, give people access to things that they couldn't see before. And I think with the aid of those things, it can become a really enjoyable path and journey. One that never ends, by the way, but certainly one that has you know, huge rewards. But yeah, they're, they're huge questions.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, the title of the book, Master Your Code, Darren, where did the, just the name of the book come from? Yeah,
1: it's it was my first yeah, you know, I'm a first time author. And so yeah. that's a really interesting question because like just the title alone. But Yeah, I just
0: finished writing my book and I gotta tell you, coming up with that first title, oh, man, yeah. it's so deep, it's so personal, it's so yeah. I think interwoven into I think your message and your big idea that you're just passionate about bringing out into the world. And when I first saw the title, Master Your Code, I tell you my first thought when I just got the introduction. Because I remember uh, one of my first mentors telling me that everything that comes into your life forms all these patterns and habits and how we react to situations, how we see ourselves, how we see others. And what he shared with me is you have to protect your brain and what you put into it and what you allow yourself to think. And he was constantly challenging me to just get better in all these little different areas over time. And that's what I thought about when I first saw the title.
1: Oh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad because that's what I wanted it to evoke. And it's not always clear, but I came up with this construct in literally in the writing of the book. It wasn't at the start of the book of this distinction that I offered at the beginning of the book, which is this idea that we all accumulate these safety-based subconscious beliefs, values, and rules that really automatically drive our behavior and limit our results. And I use the computer program as the metaphor. I said, that's our program. It's running us. We're not shaping it and running it. And it will protect us and keep us safe, but it will really limit our results. And I certainly share how that uh, happened in my life. And then we have a choice, and the choice that comes from awareness that we even have a program, which most of us don't really know, to intentionally author a code uh, an, a, you know, a consciously constructed set of beliefs, values, and rules that is purposefully designed to really serve us and lead to extraordinary results. And this distinction between program, something that runs us, that's safety-based, that's going to limit us, and a code, which is really kind of, you know, written to play to win, that goes beyond what we're comfortable doing. Um, and is intentional and conscious, I think, is at the heart of the book. And therefore, the title of you know, Master Your Code, the subtitle of the Art, Wisdom, and Science is intentional because I think some of it is an art form. But really, I wanted to convey this notion of like there is thousands of years of ancient wisdom that all of this is contained in. And so I wanted to give some practical, accessible synthesis of all of that ancient wisdom combined with we've learned a lot over the last few hundred years about, you know, principally how the mind and the body work, a lot of the science there and sort of bring those two things together so that people have a sense of like, how do I really begin to master myself?
0: Well, yeah, and I love, you know, what's buried in what you just said that I am the author of my life versus I am who I am means that we actually have the ability to rewrite the script of not only who we see ourselves as, how we're showing up, but also the life that we're living and creating. And it was about eight years ago now, I had an accident that put me in the hospital for two years. And it was coming out of that accident. I could not work full-time anymore. I couldn't do the things that I used to do. And it was this really interesting place where I had to completely reinvent myself And I realized in that moment that I could rewrite everything about who I was, what I was doing, what brought me alive and actually do it. And the crazy thing was, Darren, I had those choices. I had that ability before the accident Mm -hmm. and I was running a company. I was kind of, you know, at the top of uh, where I wanted to be professionally And in that place. I didn't think I had that as even a possibility. I was kind of on this track with these guardrails around me. And I didn't, and I was either didn't, I had fear, right? I was avoiding the risk of taking an off-ramp into something else because this was what was known to me, even though I got to tell you, I was not living in a place fully alive, even though I think a lot of people maybe from the outside looking in were probably saying, wow, it's, you know, John's doing pretty darn good, right? But that's not how I felt internally. I was, I describe it as a place of being in smoldering discontent with my life.
1: Yeah. Um, leading up to
0: that accident.
1: Yeah. It's, thank you for sharing that. I'm sure, you know, so many people can relate to that. In, you know, that incident you shared, that again, that's a crucible event that, you know, gave you enough pain to really begin to notice and to be aware. I like to say the human superpower is the ability to choose the meaning that we give to our circumstances. We have that ability. Every single part of our program was constructed or made up. Oftentimes Mm -hmm. to protect us, and if it was made up, we get to reconstruct it. That is such an amazing gift, and uh, when we realize it, which both you and I did, and it took some painful circumstances to realize it. Hopefully, I'm trying to avoid having having people having to have to go through that. What's on the other side of that, and it's not easy work. Uh, You got to take yourself on in a way that requires a lot of courage and maturity. Is the ability to construct a life that really leads to the kind of flourishing. That that you just alluded to,
0: yeah. And what does it take to do that? Kind of walk us through the process. Like if, uh, and I know a lot of it's in your book, but let's say that uh, you're a coach. I'm a coach also. Let's say, but let's say I was your client. You know, where would we start? How would you dig in and say, okay, John, this is. We know where we want to get to is that extraordinary life. Well, you know, what is kind of the path to
1: move toward that? Yeah. So absent something like, you know, really like broken or some, you know, aspiration that's just lights people up, right? Because that oftentimes provides the source for this, you know, the beginning of this kind of journey. I oftentimes will go to a place in their past. I talk about at one point in the book, uh, this notion of survival strategy. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. It's it's oftentimes a really good starting place. And I I assert that everyone as a child had some form of trauma, could be something Really serious, or just what I call lowercase t trauma, which not to diminish it, but you know, it might have been teasing or bullying. And I had an episode like that when I was eight years old, moving from you know, London to LA with an English accent was not very cool and got teased. And in that moment, I developed a survival strategy. And for me, it was the need to be likable. And I declared at that moment, I didn't know I was doing it, of course, I was eight years old, that I would do everything in my power to be likable. And I got really good at it. And so everybody has one of these survival strategies that was really designed and served to protect us when we were young. We then carry those survival strategies into our adulthood, where we're leading families or leading organizations or certainly leading ourselves. We're living in a complex world and we're taking those kind of childhood strategies and applying them as adults. And they oftentimes really reached the limits of their effectiveness. For me, it was, I found it incredibly hard. And I was in these positions where I needed to do this to have very direct and honest conversations with people. I diluted the message. I robbed people of feedback. I was pretty awful at it. And I was so likable, ironically, that people had trouble giving me feedback because they didn't, they wanted me to like them and, and be, and, and I was likable. And so it was sort of a mess. And what I often do when I'm working with people is I find, what is your primary survival strategy? And there are three types. We can go into that. And when they begin to see, holy cow, I say in the book, I was almost 40 years old when I woke up and discovered that I was living a life written, run by a program written by a seven-year-old boy. And when you give people access and insight and awareness into that in their own lives, it's a big aha moment for people. where They're like, oh my God, I had no idea big part of who I am, how I see the world, how I operate is being run by a set of these beliefs. And I can, I had no idea that was the case and I had no idea I could change them. And if I change them, wow, like the degrees of freedom I have to act and be effective, go way up. And then we're now in a very different conversation.
0: Yeah. Well, that, you know, it's interesting. So when you say running a program written by a seven-year-old boy, All these things that we kind of develop when we're younger, when we're going through, you know, whatever happens in our childhood, it sounds like that forms some of the programs that are now running in our subconscious that we're not even aware of, but they are directing what we do and how we do today, unless they've really taken some time to go back and look at that. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes. That's what I'm saying, you know, is that we construct all of these rules and beliefs and values throughout childhood into adolescence and they, they form this program and we don't even know we have a program. So the mm-hmm. very first step is this awareness, this distinction that I'm providing in the book is the first step because you can't change what you can't see. I, I share the story by the late author, David Foster Wallace, the two fishes are, sw- are swimming along and the older fish swims by and he says, Hey boys, how's the water? And he swims <laughs> by and they look at him and they go, what the hell is water? And that's a great metaphor, I think, for how most of us, myself included, for some time, go through life, you know, sort of metaphorically swimming through the waters of our culture and our conditioning and our belief structures, this program that's running us, totally unaware that the way we see the world is not the way the world is. I quote the Talmud in the book and the end of this line that says, We see the world, we do not see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And that is, for me, just a profound summation of the human experience. And so, okay, if I see the world as I am, well, I have control over who I am and how, what beliefs I hold. I could see a totally different world with a different set of beliefs.
0: Yeah, I think that was the thing that was most transformational to me. I remember I was sitting down with my coach as I was kind of really trying to connect To my real true identity. And I remember saying to him, you know, I got to really figure out how I'm wired to figure out what I need to do next. And what he shared with me, Darren, he goes, you know what, maybe you should ask yourself that differently. Maybe ask yourself how God wired you and what did he wire you for? Hmm. And I got to tell you, for me, that was this seismic shift. Instead of looking in the mirror and this person that I saw that I knew, right, all these programs and habits and reactions and identities, but what is, what would that look like coming from the best version of myself, and how do I move toward that, and I'm so glad you said that, because I think this whole, if I'm flying, I, you know, I'm a pilot, and if I'm flying an airplane, and, and I want to get to a destination, and I, I'm constantly getting blown off course, right, uh, if you're in an airplane, and you're on autopilot, you're on course less than three percent of the time, believe it or not, Yep, But that autopilot knows true north. It has a reference to make corrections. So think about that. What is that true north in our own lives? It knows where we're going. It has that destination. But it also knows exactly where you're at, right, to be able to make that correction. And I think, because you're talking about awareness, I think very few people, every people listening right now, could really actually say, you know, where am I right now? What are my limiting beliefs, my mindset? Do I really have... Uh, and understanding of my values, what brings me alive, what are my passions. And those are things that are, you know, it takes some time to slow down and connect to those. But when you do, that's when you can really, I think, accelerate some things in your life that are really meaningful. But when you were talking about earlier, you know, the three
1: types of survival strategies, what are those three? Yeah, these three are, um, number one, a belonging survival strategy. And so a person who has a primary belonging survival strategy will have an obsessive need like I did to be liked, to be included, to be accepted, right? That's number one. Number two is they might have a distancing strategy. And that's this need to be like above it all, above it all, above the fray, you know, the need to be right, the need to be smart. And we all have parts of each of these. I certainly do. And then there's a controlling survival strategy which is you know, the need to be in control, the need to be perfect, the need to get ahead and succeed, the need to win, right? And so there are, there are finding what your primary survival strategy is is just a great place to start because it will give you some insight into this personality. And by the way, personality comes from the Greek word persona, which is mask. It's not really who you are. It's who you've wound up being. Mm. And it's another really, I think, beautiful distinction. And then you can begin to start to uncover this mask and peel it back. So, you know, what you just alluded to was, you know, it's like the Michelangelo quote, you know, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. Mm. Part of the premise of the book is we're all extraordinary. We all have extraordinary gifts. We all have extraordinary callings, divine callings. And it's our job to figure out what's masking that, what's getting in the way, what layers of mask or, and I use this other story in the, in the book of stucco, um, have we layered on to protect ourselves, which is essentially a survival strategy, but is masking the true glory and true essence of who we are. And our job is to figure out how do we honor those layers that begin to gently peel them away. And that's really this path.
0: All right. So here's a question for you. Cause I, there's been times, right? Hindsight is such a beautiful thing. And you look back at a situation that either turned out well or really didn't turn out well that you learn from. And you go, you know what, if I only knew then what I know now, because I'm looking back on, okay, here's what I would have done or could have done differently. But how do we take that concept into the present so I can actually change how I am showing up, who I'm being right now without having to wait five or ten years until I, you know, develop some wisdom.
1: Yeah, there's, you know, I'd say there's a couple ways to answer that. One is what we're talking about here, right? It's just the, the, this awareness. I talk about these three domains. One is the domain of what I know I know. That's a really tiny one, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for most mm-hmm. of uh, then there's a second domain, which is what I know that I don't know. And that's where we go seek out information and where traditional learning and development happens. And then there's this enormous infinite domain called what I don't know I don't know. And if I don't know, I don't know something like, how the heck am I going to learn anything there? Mm -hmm. And so part of it is availing ourselves of the incredible wisdom out there. And part of what I wanted to do with this book is to provide what I call distinctions. We talked about computer and program or survival strategies. All of these things are distinctions and distinctions are the access to this domain of what I don't know that I don't know. And it's in that domain where real transformation happens and where we can accelerate the kind of transformational learning that you're alluding to, which is, oh my gosh, if I only knew then what I know now, or it took me 10 years, right, to move to a a new stage of development or an understanding. Distinctions, and we get those through reading and learning and availing ourselves of the incredible wisdom out there, allow us to accelerate that path so that we don't have to go, you know, to wait 10 or 15 years. We can move more rapidly along there. The, The other thing I'd say is, and... They are stages of development. They do take time. You know, there is something to be said for the journey of you know, kind of going through a period where you're a little lost and to not regret that. Uh, you know, oftentimes look back and say, "Wow, if I only knew," then you know what I know now. I'm like, "Yeah," but part of me kind of needed that part of my journey. Um, I wasn't didn't have the ego maturity or ego strength to really think any differently. So um, that's sort of how I would answer that question.
0: Yeah. You know, in a big big part of this, too, that you talk about in the book is choosing to act instead of react. And it's really kind of uh, rooted in, you know, taking responsibility for our life, for our actions. How do we start to make that shift, Darren? Because I I know that's something I've personally struggled with. I think a lot of people struggle with that concept of, you know, what, everything in my life is actually, I am responsible for this. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of a big one for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. It's, it's huge. I mean, it's, uh, I, I draw again, here we go with distinctions, another distinction in the book between a victim mindset, which is this notion that the world happens to me. There's very mm-hmm. little I can do to affect my circumstances, and a responsible mindset, which is, you know, I shape my circumstances. Um, there's always something I can do to affect any situation. I go so far as to say I'm 100% responsible where people, And by the way, the default mindset is the victim mindset. That's where most people come from. Uh, You may not even recognize it or want to admit it, but boy, and it shows up as a, a common desire to blame, you know, blame my circumstances, blame others, and maybe legitimately so, but it's not a very empowering place to be, but it's a place that's very seductive because it allows us to avoid responsibility. Responsible mindsets are much, much harder, but the payoffs are huge, the long-term payoffs. And so this shift, it may be the most fundamental shift we can make, which is to move from my dominant home being a victim mindset where I'm like blaming others and avoiding responsibility to taking absolute responsibility for my life. Where people trip up is they begin when they try this responsible mindset is they, they view that as blaming themselves. And that is not what we're talking about. This is not Mm. blaming yourself for something that happened, but it is to say, I get to control how I react to and make meaning of my circumstances. And I have a responsibility to do something about it. It doesn't matter whether I was wronged or not. Sitting in that I was wronged place and blaming others may be true. I like to say, I don't care whether the belief is true or not. That's the wrong question to ask. The real question to ask is, which belief better serves me? And the belief that I'm 100% responsible will always better serve you.
0: What would be an example of that? Because I'm just thinking, you know, I know, you know, life has its ups and downs, right? And when things are going well, you know, that this, I guess, responsibility mindset, I think is easier. But if we've just gone through, you know, our business is really having hard times. Uh, uh, Yeah, a key employee just left, we just lost a deal, my personal relationships, something just absolutely imploded, right, financially, you know, having financial problems, right? Sometimes, you know, life throws some things at us, and staying out of that victim mindset in those circumstances,
1: I know for me, has been quite a challenge. It's incredibly hard, and I don't want to, you know, dismiss how challenging it is, Uh, and I have a lot of compassion for myself and for others uh, when we're in tough circumstances. I share an example which wasn't you know, terribly tough, but it will give you and your listeners a sense of how easy it is to slip into a victim mindset. For somebody who practices this and writes about it, I was working with a pretty prominent technology company where the, um, we were coaching the entire team, and um, the CEO all of a sudden, for reasons I won't get into, decided to stop his coaching, and you can imagine the our ability to be effective without the ceo getting coached was really compromised right and i remember i went straight unknowingly here's how quickly we can slip into being unconscious into like i can't believe the ceo would make a decision like this he's going to totally jeopardize our ability to be effective with this team what kind of message is that sending uh his team we're not going to be as effective and I'm working with our team of coaches. And of course, I'm polluting their minds with this belief, right? It's a total victim mindset. I couldn't even see it. And that's me. And then literally, I just, I just was like, wait a second. If I were 100% responsible for the success of this engagement, which is a belief I've always want to hold, if mm-hmm. I'm holding that belief, what actions appear as, a, as available to take? And literally in that moment, I was like, wait a second. I, I haven't called the CEO and had a very direct conversation with him about the importance of him staying in coaching and taking a stand a neutral, you know, and without any energy or uh, recrimination, but like, Hey, this is important work. It sends the wrong signal. I want to take a stand for you resuming coaching. I haven't done that. And yet here I am complaining about him. So I was like, well, let me pick up the phone and have that conversation, which I did. And which by the way, um, got him to resume coaching. Was he guaranteed to resume coaching? No but until I've done everything in my power out of a belief that I'm hundred percent responsible, I got to give up the right to blame. It doesn't serve me. It's totally disempowering and it will happen all the time.
0: Well, yeah. And you bring up such an important point there about dealing with conflict, maybe is the right word. Mm -hmm. Right. But if I have, uh, if I'm even just working with a coworker, And they're doing something that I don't like, and it starts to affect maybe my mindset toward them. I roll my eyes when they talk or when they come in. Maybe I gossip about them when they're not there, don't even realize that I'm doing that. But that is a cancer, both for an organization, but for me internally. Yeah. And what I see, especially, well, I think it's across the different generations. I think the younger generations are even less comfortable what they see as conflict, but it really should be clarification. I I should be able to have, you know, focused on building the relationships. Let's say I'm working with you and I can come up to you and Darren's and say, hey, Darren, you know what? This could just be me, but can I share something with you that's really been bothering me? And, you know, having those communication
1: with people around you is so important, don't you think? Oh, it's critical. And I think, you know, here's a great example of how I see the world, right? So, if I see the world as if I have this conversation, right, I have a choice between either being very direct or being kind. And if I'm really direct, I'll harm the relationship. And if I'm really kind, I won't have the kind of con- clear conversation I want. And there's part of my book where I talk about these false choices we always make. Mm. You know that those things aren't mutually exclusive. What if I could see those not as an either-or but a both-and? I could see that as a natural, healthy tension, and what I call a polarity that can be integrated. What if I developed the skill set and the maturity and the competence to have conversations where I could be both direct and kind? I was like, oh, okay. And I could build relationship, right, rather than diminish relationship without having to compromise the message and where I could come from that conversation with where am I 100% responsibility for this breaking down, this relationship? Not because that's necessarily true, but because if I take that stand, it'll show me different aspects of where I've contributed, and I will come into that conversation a lot cleaner. So you can start to see it's a pulling together of all these different distinctions. Even the, the distinction I shared about the CEO, the other question I asked is like, what have I done in my coaching that has made this coaching not as attractive to him? Mm-hmm. And when I ask that question, my brain gives me an infinite number of answers, which are totally helpful, And I'm taking responsibility, not blaming myself right? Not letting the CEO off the hook, so to speak, because I didn't think he had a responsibility, but it's first owning where am I responsible. And I think that applies to, you know, even conversations where, you know, we're having trouble, difficulty with a a colleague, because oftentimes we'll go into those conversations and it's all about them. And that's why those conversations aren't successful.
0: Yeah, we have to approach those conversations, I think, a friend of mine, Ford Taylor, when I was talking about this one day, he shared with me, you know, John, when you have these, you need to approach it a certain way. And it it, ha- it wasn't something that I'd ever learned. He, got, he said, the first one is you have to approach it with humility, is that, you know what, I might be wrong, right? What I'm thinking could actually be this false narrative, mm-hmm. right? I need to approach it with pre-forgiveness. So let's say I think, you know, somebody has done something. It's one of those things that, you know, kind of you're laying there trying to go to sleep and you're still thinking about it you're still letting it, you know, occupy your brain space. And then the other place is approaching those conversations, like you said, with kindness. And, and that is that I care more about you and our relationship than maybe how you feel about me. Because I think that right there limits people even wanting to take that approach. Because if I really want to live an extraordinary life, That means I want to have extraordinary relationships. I want to be an extraordinary friend and colleague and husband and father. That means I really care for you and what's best for you and maybe where you're going. And not just whether you like me, right? Because I know that for me, that belonging, when you said that, that's, you know, my childhood. That would definitely be kind of one of my primary survival strategies. It's something I've really had to work on doing things just to be liked and sometimes not having these conversations because I was afraid of not being liked. And I think the other thing is when you approach these conversations, you got to really focus on, you know, the facts versus the narrative that you told yourself about the facts. And when you take responsibility for all of these, you can actually go to somebody and have conversations where you're like, oh my goodness, boy, was I off track on that one. I owe them apology. Mm-hmm. And man, can that just, that, just showing up like that in a, especially, in a business, in an organization, if you're leading a team, uh, might seem like a place of some extreme vulnerability. But I got to tell you, it will transform, I believe, how uh, your ability to lead
1: and be effective with the people that are around you. Yeah, I you know, totally agree. And what, what you're describing is somebody who is a master of himself. Mm-hmm. When, you become, when you have that kind of self-mastery, you really understand, oh, I've got these survival strategies, I've got this, I have the distinctions of responsible and victim, I have to be careful about not conflating story and fact, right? All of these things I can bring to bear, which may, you know, without a lot of practice seem overwhelming, right? But I can bring to bear those things on the things that matter most in my life, my relationships. You can transform the quality of those relationships. And I think what it also does is, now I have so much understanding of me, I can begin to have so much more understanding of others. So what I used to think was like, this this guy's a jerk, right? Or that behavior was uncalled for. I can start to apply the things that I've been applying to myself and under, start to ask the question about, I wonder what's underneath that. Again, it doesn't mean you just let you know people off the hook or unforgivable behavior go unnoticed. That's not what we're talking about here. But you can come at it with some skillful understanding of what's behind it. And that can change the game.
0: So, it, you know, as people work in these different areas and really kind of start to change, I guess, that programming, what have you seen as you've worked with people over time that the results are over, you know, six months, a year,
1: two years? Yeah. So one of the big changes uh, that we haven't talked about yet, we alluded to very briefly was the, the, the beliefs that we have about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And if there's something that can really limit you know yourself and what you're accomplishing and achieving and the emotional state you're having is the, the beliefs that you hold about yourself, which I call your identity, right? It's this set of aggregated beliefs that you've accumulated over the course of your lifetime about what your potential is. And they form this subconscious identity. Most people don't know that they have an identity. I oftentimes ask people, what's your identity? And they look at me like I'm crazy. And yet we all have one. And the most fundamental driver of human behavior is the desire to be consistent with your identity. Mm. You literally can't act in ways that are inconsistent with your identity. So if you want to act in ways that are going to lead to extraordinary results, you have to understand your identity. And here's the real important thing. Identities were totally constructed in response to your environment. And what can be constructed, what was constructed can be reconstructed. So we have this opportunity to choose our identity. And so a lot of the work that I do with folks is to begin to powerfully own a empowering identity that is going to naturally lead to the kinds of actions you want to take that will produce the results that you want in your life. Um, I share the example of the identity I was holding about me being an author. And for a long time, I held the subconscious identity that I wasn't an author. Now, a person that holds that identity, I am not an author. And all of the attendant beliefs, like I don't know enough, nothing I'm going to write is going to be original, people won't be interested in what I need to say, I need five to ten more years. You can imagine all of that that accompanies it. Now I'm going to talk a lot about writing a book but not write a book. And it wasn't until I claimed a powerful identity that I am absolutely an author. And I believed it with absolute certainty that I was able to write a book. A book naturally flowed out of that identity. And so what you'll see in somebody that begins this kind of process of self-mastery is the undoable, the unthinkable begins to happen because much of what was considered undoable and unthinkable was not undoable and unthinkable. We, given the underlying current psychology, it was. Um, but it was these beliefs, this program that was getting in the way of doing things that this person had natural gifts to do. They just needed to know what was getting in the way and begin to shift them.
0: Hmm. So uh, Darren, how do people connect with you, find you, get the book, uh, connect
1: with what you're doing at Triumph? Yes. Well, I have, uh, you know, the books available on Amazon, all formats, Kindle and paperback and hardcover. I, I uh, narrated the audio book on Audible. So you can go to Amazon and, and, uh, and find Master Your Code there. Uh, and I have a website, Darren J. Gold, D-A-R-R-E-N-J-G-O-L-D.com and you can join my mailing list there, and there's a bunch of resources that uh, are helpful supplements to the book.
0: Outstanding. Well, this is such a great book. I have actually, you know, Richard uh, introduced you to me, and I just had just started the book, so I have not finished it, but it is fantastic, and I'm looking forward to going all the way through this and actually uh, putting this on the list to actually, our team reads a book every month, and then we talk about it at our meetings. And uh, and this book is actually going on our reading list, uh, so I'm excited about exploring all this with our entire team and talking about it. And so, just you know, as we wrap up, what are you know, just everybody out there listening who's saying, you know, I I'd, I'd like to really create that extraordinary life. I know I don't have it now. I don't know exactly what it looks like or how to get there. And I really want to take that next step forward. What, what just final thoughts would you leave with them?
1: Yeah, I uh, have this one quote that starts the book, which is from the Stoic philosopher Epictetus. It says, no one is free who is not master of himself. And so the thing I would want to leave your listeners with is this notion of self-mastery, mm. that to get what we want in life, to get what we deserve, in life requires a taking our taking on of ourselves this notion of mastery to, to see ourselves as a the most important project in our lives and then to then to say that it requires the diligence and hard work and the availing ourselves of a lot of incredible wisdom out there I offer my book as one potential path it doesn't need to be um, there's a lot of really great stuff out there I do believe that if you want to do this it requires reading and learning, um, or listening in the case of an audio book. Um, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if you're not doing that already, that's what I would really encourage you to do.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, buddy. And, uh, the book is master your code and really encourage you guys to go to Darren J gold, D A R R E N J G O L D Darren Some great blog posts. Your newsletter is fantastic. And just thank you for what you're doing. I think it is so needed today because I also feel too is that, uh, you know, that identity that we might not be aware of, that one that we've allowed to be created that we don't have a lot of awareness, the bigger the gap between I think our ideal self and our real self is the level of stress and anxiety that we feel as we go through life. And I have found as I've closed the gap between that ideal and real self, That noise and pressure and anxiety and stress of the world has reduced significantly. And then I could actually start operating from a very different place, which has opened up so many different possibilities in my life as a husband, as a father, as a business person for what I get to do in the community with nonprofits. I got to tell you, it's, uh, you know, going through my accident, Darren, was very hard. But the person that I am today, because of it, I would not take it back because of just the life that I'm living right now. So I think the work that you're doing is so important and needed, and I really appreciate that you took the time to, to write this and you're out there speaking about it and there's something I can do to help you in what you're doing, man, please let me know. I'd, I'd love to help you take whatever next step uh, would be important to you.
1: Thank you so much and really beautifully said, John, and, and, I, and please allow me to thank you as well for all the great work you're doing. It is really needed. So thank you.
0: Thank you, brother. Uh, Have a great one.
1: You too.